Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 214. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today we're crossing over to other sports because I'm pleased to be joined by Mr. Justin Sua. Justin, how's it going? Doing well, Steve. Doing well. Thanks for having me. I am happy to have you, man. Now, you came onto my radar because I saw a whole bunch of other jiu-jitsu people follow you, talk about you, and uh, reshare your stuff. But it's exciting to talk to you because you're a performance coach from a very, very different industry, but I think very relevant here because a lot of what we're going to talk about is applicable to any sport or high-performance industry. With that said, though, I'd, I'd love to give you the floor here, and why don't you do just a quick introduction? I appreciate you saying that. I do my title currently. I'm with Tampa Bay Rays, a major league baseball team, and I'm the head of mental performance there. Previously was with the Boston Red Sox, another baseball team, but also with the Cleveland Browns, NFL, with WWE. I was with the military for years, and then I've done things with dancers and Google execs and golfers. And so you hit the nail on the head. These principles are agnostic, meaning that it could be applied to an array of different situations and like you said, not just sport. I don't believe sports have the corner market on the principles of optimizing performance. I think it could be with executives and parenting and anyone who, who wants to be the best version of themselves under when it matters most. And so I look forward to this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you completely. I mean, the the science and the practices of, of peak performance are somewhat universal. And a big part of why I started this show was because we had a, a realization that the methods that we were using on the job at work were very, very similar to the methods that we were using to train and get better at jujitsu. And so a big part of what we do here is we try to talk about and call out those intersections. And uh, I'd love to maybe learn more about how you guys do it. I mean, on the baseball front, obviously, uh, classically considered a much more team sport than jujitsu, but I would be very happy to know how you guys do it? You know, when you talk about some of these principles and best practices, what does that look like? What are the, the rules and the guidelines that you try to bring to your teams when you're building them out or when you're giving consulting advice? I think at the very beginning, you got to understand the first principles of what is the athlete? What is the person trying to accomplish? Understanding the nuance, understanding the environment, external, internal. And I think a lot of times people will read books, they'll watch movies, they'll watch documentaries, go to school and they'll try to apply these principles like they're comparing apples to apples. But I loved how you brought up, you need to take into consideration the environment. What is the context so that you could so that you could apply the principles properly? So the first thing is, okay, what is the nature of a baseball player? And not just baseball player, hitters are different than pitchers. Starting pitchers are different than closing pitchers. Football the same way. A quarterback mentality is different than an offensive lineman, different than a receiver, different than a defender. And so to truly help someone, you need to understand what is it, what are their obstacles? What triggers stress? How do they respond to stress? What does success look like? What are they trying to accomplish? Where are you in your training regimen? Are you in the off season? Are you getting ready for a big competition? Where are you right now? So we know how we're going to approach this. And at the end of the day, we're trying to optimize decision-making. At the end of the day, we want this athlete, this fighter, this coach, this person to be able to be in a space, to be present, to be where their feet are, to make elite decisions at a high level and, and make less bad decisions. And so that's what we're ultimately trying to get. Now, it might require visualization for some person, some people. For someone else, it might be meditation. 
For someone else, it might be journaling. For someone else, it might be delving into self-talk. For someone else, it might be taking a deeper look at nutrition and sleeping. It might be getting feedback. And so it's really, there are no cookie cutter one approach to it. It's really understanding the player, the athlete and say, okay, what do you need for your current circumstances? And so that takes a lot more work. There's a lot more nuance, a lot more time, but it's a lot more accurate as we build out for for these individuals. Yeah, yeah. It's it's great that you bring that up. We actually had Dr. Rob Gray on the podcast recently from the Perception and Action podcast, who's a, you know, he's a researcher at, I believe, the University of Arizona in this field. And something that he's kind of facetiously said is, coaching isn't rocket science. It's actually much harder. <laughs> and, you know, that I think a lot of people kind of get, you know, get their hair up about that. But honestly, I, I understand where he's coming from here. Because I mean, look, that's not to say that launching a rocket is easy. But the one thing about coaching is you're dealing with human beings and human beings are extraordinarily variable, right? There isn't really a formula I think you can give for how to build a a high performance athlete, because like you said, every athlete is going to be a completely different can of worms. And a big part of your job as a coach is to figure out on kind of a one-on-one basis, how do you crack open all of these walnuts that are your players and how do you solve their problems and get them to be the best versions of themselves? And I I guess that leads into my next question, which is how do you do that? You know, you've got a, a room full of people. They're all very different. How do you go about starting that process of coaching where you figure out, okay, what is it that these people actually need? I really love how you teased out the rocket side that I like that quote and I could definitely see where people could be up in arms about that. And I don't believe, and I know he is a tongue in cheek, not saying, not comparing jobs, but what I do like about it, just to add a little bit more, uh, just a little more color to that from my perspective is when we talk about experts in any domain, in any field, what makes it difficult to be a true expert in the field of psychology in general, human performance is understanding just human personality. Like you said, human behavior, it is not binary, it is not linear, and it is not stable. And so to be able to predict and to forecast human behavior, it's very difficult. And so these strategies, these techniques, these principles that we are discussing, that I talk about, that we share, I have to be very honest with these athletes and these coaches to say, hey, this is, these are heuristics. These are frameworks. These aren't binary fixes for performance. You can't guarantee anything. And some people are like, wait, that's not, then why do we hire you? We need to be realistic that, hey, we're human beings and what works for one person might not work for another person. What works for you now might not have worked for you back 10 years ago or might not work for you in the future. So it's constantly updating and exploring and understanding how you are. And it's such a dance. And so to your question, how do you do it? That is, it's a great question. I am reminded, I haven't told this story in a very long time. In a previous life, I was a high school teacher. And I think high school teachers and parents and coaches, like you, you want to, it is very difficult to understand human behavior as a teacher, a coach, or a parent, or when you're dealing with large groups of people, because you can see how variable everybody is. Even parents, we have three children ourselves. Every child is completely different. And for those who are listening, who have children, it's like, yeah, you have same parents, same house, same food, same standards, same everything, but completely different personalities and you approach your children completely different ways. I was uh, teaching one time and I thought I was doing a very good job. At at least uh, looking at myself, I think I was a little more overconfident and we can get into the self-assessment bias and overconfidence. We think we're a lot better than we really are. Well, I was definitely in this instance, that's where I was. So my supervisor says, hey, what grade would you give yourself for teaching? And I said, well, I'd give myself an A. Of course. And this is the reason why. And I said, well, what do you think? He goes, well, I, I'd give you a C. Now, I was initially incredibly offended that he'd give me a C, but then he gave me all these reasons why. And now I wasn't quite sure I agreed with him at the time, but I thought, okay, wow, well, I was a little bit, I wasn't calibrated as well as I thought I was. But then he gave me an analogy that has stuck with me to this day. And this, he, this was back in 2005 or so, 2000 years ago. And I think about it all the time to this day. He goes, Justin, there are two types of teachers. There are mere approach teachers 
and they're a magnifying glass approach teachers. He goes, mere approach teachers stand in front of people and they focus on what they're going to say. You mirror, you look at yourself, what you're going to say, what you're going to do, how you're going to be perceived, what skills you're going to do, how they're going to talk about you and share about you. It's purely status, all about you. You are the sage on the stage. Now there's magnifying glass approach teachers. These are the teachers who are more focused on the students. What are the students going to learn? What are they going to say? What questions are they going to answer? How am I going to create an environment where they motivate themselves? He goes, these are teachers who are more focused with being guides on the sides. He goes, Justin, right now you are a, a sage on the stage. You are a mirror approach teacher. But once you learn how to be a magnifying glass approach teacher, the guide on the side, he goes, you're going to do a lot more helping you're going to impact more people. You're going to be more concerned and you're going to ask better questions. And it's going to help you propel the students to be better versions of themselves. That was over 10 years ago. And that's when I was in a domain, not in the domain I'm in currently. And I think about that all the time. So to answer your question, how do you start? It starts with building relationships so strong that it can bear the weight of truth. To be able to build relationships with these athletes who are way better at their domain than I am, respect their experience, respect their expertise, respect what they do and ask questions and to notice and to say that I notice what they're going through. And so to be able to build these relationships so strong it could bear the weight of truth, that is where we get going. I want to know, ask them questions that nobody else has asked them, that sometimes they get offended. How dare you ask me that question? But once you build that relationship, they can be honest and then we can get in and do the work. I love that that bit about building the relationship first, because this idea of kind of having human capital with people is so key in all walks of life. And it just isn't something that gets thought about enough. As an example, I just got a, a ping message on LinkedIn from someone that I hadn't spoken to in years. And they just basically reached out and asked me for something, right? And this is a common mistake that a lot of people make is they won't warm the oven and keep the relationship hot mm. until they need something. And then all of a sudden, someone that you hadn't spoken to in years will just pop out of the blue and ask you for something, right? And it just, it always rubs me the wrong way because it just, it feels so transactional and and needy when people do that. And I think coaching is like that as well. You have to kind of earn the privilege to be a coach for someone. And that comes down to, you know, what have you done beforehand to earn the right to give them feedback that they will take seriously? You know, if you just walk into a room and you start barking orders and you haven't built that relationship where the person will be receptive to listening to you, you're probably only harming your standing in the group and you're not going to get the message across like you want to. But I love this idea of kind of coming in and being the mirror and not being someone who kind of comes in and is overwhelming and puts people on the defensive, but rather you build that relationship and you earn the right to be that that trusted advisor to the person. Just a great way to look at things. I like how you explain that. And I think I just recently heard, a, I can't I want to attribute who said this and I cannot, I don't know who said it, but uh, they were talking about the difference between a consultant and a coach and how consultants are the perceived experts, been there, done that. Let me consult. Let me give you my expertise. Now, the coach, on the other hand, elite performers, elite athletes have coaches. They, they have coaches, not because the coach is better than them at that task. It's that athlete trusts the outside perspective of the coach to be able to say, Hey, you're the expert. I noticed this. What was your decision on this? Hey, I know why did you do this and not this? And why did you do this and not this? Where you, the coach is the one who is able to respect the expertise of the athlete themselves. And instead of telling them what to do, it's asking, hey, hey, walk me through this decision. Walk me through this. Hey, you did this and not this. What what went through your mind on that? And a lot of times the athlete's like, you know what? I didn't even that was unconscious. Oh, what, what could have been a better way to do that? Oh, we, maybe I could have done this. And, and I, you're right. I, to be able to have the relationships with the athlete or with the person to be able to sit and explore this together because it's very vulnerable. It, a lot of these conversations are very, very vulnerable where an athlete will say something and I'll look and I'll be like, do you really mean that? Like, is that what you said this? It sounds like you're, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid? And you know what? Yes, I am afraid. This is what I'm afraid of and why. And so it does come with being able to sit with them and be there through the good, through the bad, and to truly explore their inner dialogue, their inner world together. So 
At the level that you perform at, how much of coaching is actually related to technique? Because it sounds like everything you've said in terms of the things that really matter from a coach's perspective, this is all, you know, kind of like psychotherapy in a lot of ways. You're not teaching people necessarily how to throw a baseball more effectively. You're talking about something completely divorced from technique. So I'd be curious to know when you when you coach your people, how much of this, how much of the work you really do is about mindset and performance versus the nitty gritties of how to actually play the game. Oh, yes. I am not a coach. I will not talk mechanics. I will not talk strategy. We have expert coaches who that is their domain. That is where they are. And what's great about being when you work on a team like that, that is that needs to be established right out of the gate. I need to have a strong relationship with the technicians, the coaches who are teaching the mechanics, who are working on the strategy, who are doing approach. I have an outstanding relationship with them, very transparent, very open, so we can delineate and say, this is what I do and this is what I don't do, so that the athlete isn't concerned or the coach concerned, wait a minute, is Justin is Justin talking about something that is, he has no business talking about, knowing that I'm not. I'm not going to, we're at this level where I'm not, I'm not going to start talking about mechanics with a major league baseball player, an NFL football player, because that is outside of my circle of competence. And so number one is establishing boundaries and roles on the coaching staff. So the player can say, okay, this is my team. I have my strength and conditioning coach. I have my mental performance development coach with Justin. I have my pitching hitting coach. I have my analytics coach. And then the athlete knows that we all collect and, and collaborate as well. Now, in addition to that, the athlete also has a clinical psychologist or a therapist if he wants to go to see that person. We sometimes we don't distinguish. I am not a mental health practitioner. I am not a clinical psychologist. It is pure decision-making performance optimization Anytime it bleeds into or goes into clinical health or counseling, they have that, that person off the field for off the field stuff as well. And so depending on the person I'm working with, it could look a little bit different, but a lot of times it's all about development and optimizing performance. Okay, what are your goals for this week? What are you doing to get better? Okay, what are you working on right now? Okay, how is it with your position coach? What is something, a weakness that you two are working on? Okay, how is it coming along? And so, okay, what are your struggles about it? What are your frustrations about it? And so that is where we are at. It's very developmental, mental, physical, just trying to help push along and help this athlete get better in every single domain. Not that I'm the one, but just almost not necessarily accountability buddy, but basically to say, okay, this is what you're working on. What's your approach to it? Just to create some more strategy around his process. I see. I see. And, and something you said there really resonated with me, which is that your goal is to help people make better decisions faster. And that's something that I've thought about from the jujitsu perspective. If there's one thing that I can help people do in terms of their performance, it's not going to be teaching them how to do a particular technique better. It's teaching them how to make better decisions in the moment faster. I mean, in the case of a combat sport, right? If you make one bad decision, you can let the whole fight get away from you. Or alternately, if it just takes you too long to make a decision, just that split second of hesitation can be enough to cost you the fight. That's one of the things about combat sports is that, you know, it's, it's a very, very kinetic thing. It's you versus the other person. And all it takes, especially at a high level, is just one tiny little mistake. And then next thing you know, the, the whole fight has just gotten away from you and you're trying to come from behind, which you always want to avoid doing. So I would love to dig into this when we talk about, okay, I want to help my athlete make better decisions faster. What does that tool set look like? You know, what do you kind of provide people with so that they're more equipped to do that when it's go time? This is great, great question. So right out of the gate, it's being able to document, prepare for the performance, and also to look forward to the performance and then to look back on the performance. So anytime a player finishes performance, what we get into, what happens a lot of times is we'll get done with the performance and then move on. The amateur will just move on. That was fun. That was bad. That was terrible. Okay, let's go back into training and just hit the drawing board. But in order to be elite, one of the things that they master, they're masterful at is being able to learn 
from the previous performance, something as simple as that. And well, one thing that we do a lot with these athletes is when a performance is over, we answer three questions. The first question is, what did I do well? These athletes are very hard on themselves, very, very hard on themselves. And sometimes they're so hard on themselves that they are blinded to the good that they're doing, the good decisions they made, the optimal things that they did. And so we sit down and have them identify what did you do well? What was it in this performance? What good decisions did you make? How did it go from the positive side? And this is very, this is critical because there is a phrase out there that I am not a fan of. Those who are close to me, they know I do not like it. There's this phrase, sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. I do not like the phrase because what it suggests is that you don't learn from winning. I am a firm believer that you can learn from winning. And the true quote is, you win and you lose, but you can learn from both. And so if you have a successful performance, a lot of times we just we just lean into the positive emotions. We won. That was great. Okay, let's move on. But in the world, a lot of times people really want to learn from the failures. They're like, no, no, no. Let's pull out the great stuff we learned from winning. What did you do well? How did you prepare? What good decisions did you make? So that we can replicate that next time. Let's put that in our prefrontal cortex and do it on purpose, with purpose the next time as well. So that's question number one. What did we do well? Number two is what did we learn? Now, what did we learn from the good and the bad? What did you learn from your mistakes? What did you learn from your successes? What did you learn from your opponent? Did your opponent do something that, that we might want to take a look at that exposed us or that they did? We're like, whoa, that was really good. Let's see if we can implement this ourselves. What did you learn? And we'll write it down. And then lastly, what are you going to do better next time? What do we need to go into the training ground and what do we need to work on, particularly our weaknesses? Because when you get into a lot of people want to practice what they're already good at, what is the bad, where were we exposed? Let's go work on that weakness. Let's go tinker around with that to get better so we don't get God on that the next time. So then when we're going into performance, it's like, okay, what is our plan? How are we preparing? What did we do to prepare for this? Let's imagine worst case scenario, how are we going to respond when this happens? What do we respond if this happens? Okay, great. You go, you perform, and then you then you do what it went well, what did I learn, what am I gonna do better? And then you just keep iterating over and over and over again. So ultimately, it's cultivating the growth mindset. And uh, I'll pause there. We can get into the intricacies of the growth mindset, the components of it. But in order to get better, it's adopting this mindset that I can change. I'm a work in progress. I can evolve and I can continue to get better. That's ultimately what we're trying to cultivate in these elite performers. Yeah, that is wonderful advice. And I, man, I really can't wait to hear you unpack the growth mindset here. Before we do, though, I just want to reflect on something that you, you said there. That quote about, you know, you either win or you learn is incredibly prevalent in jujitsu. And just like in your sport, there is pushback on it because the implication is that you don't learn from winning. And realistically, if you are building a good feedback loop, you should always be trying to learn regardless of the outcome. In fact, a huge problem problem, especially in jiu-jitsu, is that people get so overly married to the outcome and the result that they fail to take lessons away. I mean, the thing about jiu-jitsu is it's, you know, in some ways it is a team sport, but ultimately at the end of the day, when it's go time and when you're competing or you're sparring, at that point, it's up to you, right? Your team has already done their part and you're in there by yourself. So whether you, you won or you lost, it, there's really no excuses to hide behind. That is all on you. And the pursuit of chasing the win can be just intoxicating for a lot of people. And in fact, a very common problem that we have in our sport, don't know about yours, but in jiu-jitsu, people, when they're in the gym trying to train and trying to learn, they're so focused on winning that they're not focused on learning. They'll often go into a session and their goal is to, to win, right? To tap out their training partners. I mean... Look, that's a great attitude to have in competition where wins and losses matter, but in the gym, your goal should be to learn, right? It doesn't matter if you walked in and 12 people submitted you one after the other. That doesn't make it a bad class for you. 
What makes it a bad class is if you fail to learn anything out of it. And so I, I love that idea you brought up about building the feedback loop, always assessing whether you won or lost and not getting so hung up on the actual win and loss that you forget about, okay, did I actually learn something? Because that that is why we go to train, right? Is we should be trying to learn. And it's so key to always make learning part of that process. Gold. Absolute gold, what you just said. You reminded me, for two years, I was with the U.S. Army working with combat medics, military intelligence, and the wounded warriors. And one thing that, uh, in terms of training for the soldiers, is they delineate, they make sure they distinguish between two types of mindset. There's the training mindset, and there's the trusting mindset. And the training mindset is all training. It's the process. Let me go in the train. Let me fail. Let me rumble. Let me... Let me let me sweat. Let me bleed. Let me this. Let me learn. Let me check my ego. That you always hear that. Check your ego. Check your ego in training. Check your ego in training, so that you can learn. And then when you go into combat or the performance or whatever it is, then you trust. You trust your training. You train yourself to trust yourself. And so if you're only going in and focusing on the results in training, then you're 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 missing all the lessons and the growth. You only want to put yourself in a positions where you win and succeed. And that's not conducive to true stratus, just incredible growth. And so I loved how you put that. So we're, we're trying to do is build systems. I loved how you talked about feedback loops, which is a component of systems theory. We're trying to build systems. And what we say is wherever you see consistency, a system is in place. And so training that's where you build the system. That's where you build the mental system, the physical system, the learning system, so that when you get into combat, when you get into competition, you can activate the trusting system and you just get into flow and your decisions happen more automatically. Obviously, you're still making these decisions, but you're more likely to make better decisions because you trained it before. I, lo- I loved how you put that. Well, let's expand on that because you talked about the growth mindset, something that is absolutely key to have if you want to be able to do this stuff. If you are married to a fixed mindset, for example, it's very hard to go outside of your comfort zone and do the things you need to do to develop new skill. But maybe talk a little bit about this, about the growth mindset, how you picked up on this and the, the science that you know about it. Yes. For those who are unfamiliar with the growth mindset, it comes from Dr. Carol Dweck out of Stanford. And what I love about it, not only does it have the academic rigor behind it, but it also has just, there's, it's practical, it's applicable. So essentially the growth mindset, it's, you contrast it with the fixed mindset. The, the fixed mindset essentially states that I cannot change. I am a finished product. And the growth mindset is you can change, you can adapt, you can evolve. Now, it's not a motivational cat poster. It's actual neuroscience. Science has shown because of neuroplasticity that we can evolve, we can grow. Yes, it's easier when you're younger. Those kids are are sponges and it slows down, but you can still grow, adapt, evolve. Just the neuroscience behind it has proven that. Now, There are essentially five components. The growth mindset, number one, learns from failure. You learn from failure. If you have the growth mindset, you want to take a failure. Now, a lot of times we will use, you hear these quotes, oh, learn from failure. It helps you get better. It helps you grow. Yes. What we also don't want to discount is that failure is sometimes embarrassing. Failure is painful. Failure is lonely. Failure makes you mad. Absolutely. I don't, I do not want to minimize the emotionality of failure. I think sometimes we're getting to a point where we're putting failure on a pedestal and like chase it, chase it without, without realizing that yes, it is a terrible feeling to lose. We're not wanting it. People with the growth mindset still hate to lose. They don't like it, but they learn from it. They learn from it because they know they don't want to make the same mistakes next time. The second component, number two, is embracing obstacles. The person with a growth mindset wants the challenge. They don't just want to do the thing that's easy. They want to do the thing that's hard because they know it's going to take them to the next level. They know that as they practice the moves and their weaknesses, it's going to shape them and they're going to grow and they're going to be a better version of themselves. The third component is effort level. The person with a growth mindset gives their best effort no matter what. It's, the, it's a right level of effort. So for those who are listening, if you've ever played a board game 
with somebody who is losing by a lot and there's no way they can win the game, what you might see in someone with a growth of a fixed mindset is they quit, they get angry, they give up, and they just don't give their effort. That is a fixed mindset. Now, you contrast that with, let's say somebody is winning by a lot, they hit their goals, but the game's not over, the performance isn't over, and they just kind of coast. They're just kind of like, oh, okay, I won. The game's in the bag. The performance is in the bag. And they don't give their best effort. They just, because they like they read the writing on the wall, they're going to win. The growth mindset says, I'm going to give my best no matter what the results are stating. Now, in addition to that is your best might be 80%. It might be 90%. Instead of focusing on the 10% you don't have, the 20% you don't have, focus on what you do have that given day. The fourth component, these last two are some of my favorites, is seeking critical feedback. If you have the growth mindset, you want to be told how you can get better. You seek it. There was a day I was at football practice with an NFL team, and they're running through drills. And these elite football players were running in drills, and the coaches were barking out. The coaches were barking out positive reinforcement. Good job. There you go. That's excellent. That's wonderful. And the best player on the team, the best receiver says, that's not going to make us better. And the coach is like, what do you mean? He goes, anyone can tell us what we're doing well. He goes, you're a coach. We expect you to take us to the next level. Please tell us what we're doing, what we need to do better. And from that moment on, the coach started to give the nuance, attention to detail, coaching cues. Uh, Your foot was out of place. Hey, put your hand here. Hey, try this, try that. And the player was like, there we go. That's going to take us to the next level. And that was more, it showed, it reflected the growth mindset of the athlete. He wanted, he didn't want to be told he was great. Tell me what I'm not good at. Tell me what my deficiencies are. Tell me what my weaknesses are. I want to get better. And so if you want to have the growth mindset, seek critical feedback. When was the last time you went up to a coach? When was the last time you went to your significant other? When was the last time you went to your boss and said, hey, do you notice anything I can improve? And then grab your notebook, grab a pen, and then write down some notes on how to improve. And then last but not least is the success of others. A person with a growth mindset, they are inspired by the success of others. They want to learn from the success of others. They're not jealous. They're not envious. They're not making excuses. Oh, like, oh, they're only good because of this and that. It's like, no, let me... Let me learn from the success of others and how do I grow from this? And so those are the five components of the growth mindset. Am I learning from failure? Am I embracing obstacles? Am I giving my best effort? Am I seeking critical feedback? Am I learning from the success and failures of others? I love that part about learning from and celebrating the success of others. I think too many people look at competition as a a zero-sum game where, you know, you you either win or you lose and it's easy to get jealous of other people's victories because to some extent you can perceive that as uh, taking something away from you, especially if this is something that you would ordinarily or otherwise compete with that person on. And that's understandable, right? I mean, uh, in any given competition, there's only one seat at the top of the podium most of the time. So I get it. But being jealous of other people's victories denies you the opportunity to learn from what they did, right? So thinking more in terms of abundance and less in terms of scarcity, you know, mine, 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 that's a very important mindset shift that often goes along with that growth mindset where you you learn to celebrate and appreciate the wins of other people rather than just getting upset about it and wondering why didn't it happen to me? Mm, I, I really like that. And If somebody is listening to this and they heard what you said, which I agree with what you said, and they're thinking, all right, Steve, yeah, that's easier said than done. Easier said than done, which is true. And all I would say to that person in defense of what you just said is I, the players will joke sometimes, I will always say, I'll never tell you how to feel. I'll never tell you how to feel because you're going to, I can't force feelings. You can't. If I can't look at someone and say, hey, be positive. Hey, hey, stop being jealous. It's like, okay, great advice. Yeah, great. I can't. All I will say is to investigate and pay attention to what your feelings do to your body and what it does to your stress level and what it does to your actions. Just notice it. Pay attention. So these feelings of jealousy you may have, what does it do to your desire to want to train? Oh, it makes me not want to train, kind of give up. Oh, what does it do to your openness and willingness to connect with that person? Oh, it makes me not want to talk to them or whatever. Okay. Are you okay with that? 
is that something that you deem as optimal? Is that something that you deem as, does that align with your values? And they'll say, no, it, it doesn't. Okay, great. Like, understand this is a storm. You're going to have human emotions, but just pay attention to what these emotions do to you so that we can look back and investigate and maybe get through the storm faster. Well, we're human. You're going to have jealousy. You're going to have frustration. You're going to have anger and, and be mad, but hey, let's be in it to see it, to study it, study what it does to you so we can get past the storm a little faster. It reminds me of a, I was in a plane once and I was sitting next to an, a pilot. And so they're called deadheads who are pilots who are sitting, who aren't actually flying the plane. And so he's sitting next to me and we're going through some very bad turbulence. And you hear the passengers starting to get really worried, like audible sounds like, like gasping with the turbulence we we're going through. And I'm sitting next to a pilot and he goes, and he seemed really relaxed. He's just sitting there reading his book. And, and I said, well, what do you have on turbulence? Can you talk to me about that? Cause I was getting a little bit nervous myself. And he goes, what's really interesting about turbulence as a pilot is that it's inevitable. You're going to hit turbulence. And he goes, sometimes it's predictable. You can see the turbulence coming. And as a pilot, we go around it. We just say, Hey, you know what? Let's, even though we know it's not going to destroy the plane, we don't want to scare the passengers, so we'll fly around it. And then he says, sometimes the turbulence is, is uncontrollable. You just didn't see it popping up, and you just have to go through it. And he goes, as a pilot, you understand two things. Number one, planes are built for turbulence. We Very, very, very low percentage, like less than 1% of plane crashes happen as a result of turbulence because planes are built for this, but the passengers don't realize it. Another thing is passengers feel like the plane is dropping 50 feet when it's not dropping 50 feet at all. It just feels like it's the end of the world. And he goes, but when you're in the middle of turbulence as a pilot, you just got to remember one thing, just the planes are built for turbulence and you just have to keep flying. And I think that's a great analogy for life as well. One of the things with these athletes is you're going to experience turbulence. And with the growth mindset, it's helping them understand that sometimes you could avoid turbulence in life and sometimes you can't. It's just part of it. You signed up for the tough road the moment you committed to going after your dreams. And so it's go the odds of you experiencing the agony of defeat are very high very, very high if you're going to go for something difficult. So you need to remember you were built for turbulence and to just keep flying, just keep going, just keep training, just keep learning. And you're going to be stronger as a result of it. And so again, not to become this motivational speaker or, or whatnot, but to help them understand the nature of peak performance. You, it is inevitable that you will experience turbulence along the way. That's why it's important to cultivate the growth mindset so that we can learn and absorb as many lessons from this time so that we don't repeat preventable mistakes. What's fascinating there is you talked about some things that kind of sound like mindfulness practice or, or even kind of like light stoicism. And I think you mentioned mindfulness and visualization as methods that you employ at the beginning of this chat, but I'd love to dig into that a little bit deeper. Are these tools that you deploy with your athletes and have you had success with them? Yes. And once again, respecting the personalities of different people, mindfulness training essentially is the skill of putting your mind where you want, when you want. It comes down as a function of attention control at the end of the day. Again, going back to the science, the neuroscience of attention, and Amishi Jha is one of my favorite eminent researchers on this topic. Where is your attention? Where your mind goes, your body flows. And what mindfulness training essentially is training these athletes and performers to put their mind where they want, when they want. If you're stressed out, go follow the trail. Where's your attention? Where's your mind? Where is it going? And just to notice. And so a lot of players, what we're, when they're getting nervous and anxious, they're, they're nervous or anxious about something happening in the future, when they're really frustrated or they're really mad about something that happened in the past. And they allow their failures of the past or their worries of the future to impede their progress and their performance in the present. And so what mindfulness training, simple, is just picking an anchor and having them focus on their breath 
We're helping them focus on an auditory stimulus or physical stimulus, the the air coming in and out of their nose or the, the rise and fall of their belly or their shoulders when they breathe, something. And when your mind leaves, bring it right back. And we do this all the time with athletes. And I'm not going to say that everybody does it. Some do, some don't, some like it, some don't. And And I always make it an option for them to try. If somebody, if someone wants to learn how to quiet their mind, this is one of the absolute go-to tools that we work on with people to help them understand, number one, the mechanics of their attention. Where does it go? Why does it go there? And then here is a tool to help them practice this. One of the things I've often said about our sport, about jujitsu is it's kind of like forced mindfulness. You know, there's a lot of people who struggle with meditation or they get really frustrated because it is very, very hard to, to actually do, right? It's deceptively hard to be mindful for more than five seconds at a time. And so a lot of people struggle with that. But in a, a sport like jujitsu, you kind of have to be mindful because it's very hard to focus on anything but the present moment when someone's sitting on top of you trying to choke you unconscious, right? It's really, really hard to be worrying about what happened at work today when you're just in a gym now and some 300 pound dude is sitting on your chest. So for a lot of people, I think jujitsu is kind of their first experience with mindfulness. And I think that's why it has such an addictive quality. I think that when you talk about things like flow state, right, that joy of performance that a lot of athletes get to, right, kind of the ideal performance zone, I kind of feel like a big part of that, part of the reason why it's so joyful is because it's a very mindful experience to be completely in the performance and in the present moment. And that's always such a wonderful thing if you can steer athletes toward. I'd be curious to know if you've got any any triggers or mechanisms for helping your your athletes kind of reach that peak state i've talked to to high performance jujitsu coaches before and they often talk about tricks and tactics that they have to try to force themselves or or guide themselves into a a peak performance mental state and i'd be curious to know if that's something that you have any advice on that's a great question so you're referring to mihai cheeks and mihai's work in flow state some call it the zone a lot of great work he was the eminent researcher on this and for those flow state essentially is is the alignment of your perceived challenge and your perceived skill set so when there is an alignment between when your perceived skill set matches your perceived challenge you're a lot more likely to slip into flow state i'm very mindful with i'm very uh, deliberate with the word language i'm using i'm going to tell you why here in a little bit but if you perceive that your skill set is higher than your perceived challenge then you're going to experience boredom if you perceive that your challenge is higher than your perceived skill set then you're going to experience anxiety or nervousness. And so that's what flow state is all about, is being right there in that sweet spot of your perceived challenge matches your perceived skill set. Now, some other concepts, some corollary concepts to this as well, is you lose track of time. And flow state is either time speeds up or time slows down. We hear that phrase, man, time flies when you're having fun. That's flow state. Or it seems like, These hitters in Major League Baseball, this projectile is coming at them at 100 plus miles an hour, but when they're in the flow state, it feels like it's a beach ball and coming so slow where they can see it perfectly. That's flow state. Another thing, the concept of flow state is you don't care about the perceptions of others. You don't care what other people think about you because you're so absorbed in the here and now. And finally, another perceived concept of flow state as well is, yeah, yeah, you're just, you're lost. It's an autotelic experience. So auto meaning self, telic meaning goal. So the experience or the task is the goal itself. You're rolling because you love to roll. You're competing because you love to compete. You're training because you love to train, not because what the byproduct, not because of the what's going to come as a result. You are here. You are now. You are loving this moment. That is when you experience flow state. Now, the research shows that flow state is not something you can force. You cannot force flow. However, what you can do is you in, could increase the odds of experience it more often. One way is to enhance competence. The better you get at your craft, the easier it is going to be to experience flow state. Just That's just how it is because 
you're going to be more opt, especially when you continue, when you make sure that you keep upping your challenge. So that's why flow state and growth mindset uh, meet really closely. If you're getting better, but you keep working at a low level, your challenge is very low, it's almost going to get boring because you're just going to keep winning. Flow state happens when your challenge matches your skill. So as you get better, keep adding that skill level. Another thing as well to enter flow state is to keep focusing on the here and now. Like you said, be present, be in the moment, be where your feet are, where that's why mindfulness practice is so important because it's purely training to be in the here and now. Another thing as well is is just this mindset around focusing on the process, being so engulfed in the process and in learning, that's where flow state happens because the moment you become attached to results, the moment you become attached to what other people think about you, you get out of flow state. Flow state is not about results. Flow state is about here and now. So anything that pulls you out of the here and now, that it gets you out of flow state. Now, what we also say, so the general, the old research said 10% of the time, you're going to experience flow state about 10% of the time in certain sports. And you always want to take research with a grain of salt because it's not universal for all domains, all moments. So just, I think the big thing to take out of it is that you're not going to experience it the majority of the time. So the question you need to ask yourself is, what can I do to increase my odds to be there, number one? And then even probably a better question is, how do I stay present and how do I manage my mind and my body and my emotions when I am not in flow states? Since I'm not going to be there most of the time, am, do I have skills and tools to be able to manage the mess and manage the anxiety and manage my propensity to chase results and manage the fact that I care what other people think about and to not embarrass myself? Do I have tools to inoculate myself and to protect my three things? Am I, how am I, have I created systems to protect my energy, to protect my focus, and to protect my time? Those are three critical finite resources, my energy, my focus, and my time. Have I created systems to protect those things inside and outside of sport? And if you have created those, you are going to be in the best position to be successful. You know, someone who has, has talked a bit about this is Josh Waitskin. He's a kind of a Renaissance man, but for the purposes of this conversation, what he is best known for is he's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, and he's also the author of the book, The Art of Learning. And he's talked in the past about how he has a thing he calls building your triggers. And the idea is whenever he encounters something that is taking him out of peak performance mode, usually something related to distraction or frustration, he tries to mentally reframe it so that he can just kind of push himself right back into the right direction that he wants to be. He gives some examples, like one, for example, is he talked about how in his preparation for a chess tournament, in addition to the many other things Josh has done, he's a a chess champion. He was actually the inspiration for the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer. And one of the things he talks about is how he, at some point in his training and in his prep, he had a song stuck in his head and it got so distracting to him that it was getting frustrating and it was actually preventing him from being able to perform and focus. And at some point he just realized, you know what, I'm going to make this song my go song, right? Like this is going to be my like get up and go song. And I'm going to change my thinking where rather than getting frustrated about the song, I'm going to embrace the song and I'm going to get hyped by the song and I'm going to love this song. And so he kind of changed it so that whenever he had that earworm in his head, it actually became something that motivated him. He's also talked in the past about tactics that opponents would use when playing chess, like they would kick him under the table or do things to deliberately annoy him and how he was able to, to build a trigger where whenever that happened, instead of getting frustrated, he kind of reframed his thinking like, okay, you know, this person feels they need to take me off my game. This is working. I'm doing well. And just that little shift prevented him from going into that downward spiral of frustration and annoyance and distraction that is, is so key to just killing performance if that happens to you, right? And I, I'd love to know if that's something that you guys think about, uh, how to kind of deliberately reframe your thinking so that negatives become positives and if you can help encourage people to perform better by doing so. 
Yes. Simple terms and an emphatic yes. Joshua Waitskin is an outstanding, it's an amazing story. His book is one of my favorites. His story is incredible. What I particularly love about his story is chess is a very algorithmic, binary sport task, very like math. There's a limited amount of moves, which is amazing. And then he went into push uh, was a push hands, Tai Chi, push hands, the Tai Chi, and then jujitsu, which is more fluid. And I love how he applied the same principles to something that's not as binary and more decision making and probabilistic. And so it's neat to see his story. I love that you're using him as an example. So what you are describing, if we were to label this and to first of all, what he does is exactly what we train professional athletes to do is basically, I might should have said this in the very beginning, there are three things you can train. You could train your body, you could train your craft, and you could train your mind. But what a lot of people don't understand is how to train your mind. You can, what tools can I use to be able to train my mind? And this is one of them. Now, the tool that we're using in this example is called implementation intentions. Basically, basically using an if-then statement with your mind. So if this happens, then I'm going to respond this way. If my opponent does this, then I'm going to do this. If this song pops into my mind, then I'm going to use it and respond this way. The research shows that you're more likely to respond effectively to adversity if you prepare to respond effectively to adversity. If you don't prepare for it, you're going, if you don't anticipate it, you're going to activate the amygdala, the stress center, the fight, flight, or freeze response. However, if you have created a preparation for it, a plan for it, and have practiced it, and you have a plan, then when that adversity, not if, but when it happens, when you get kicked under the table, when that song pops up, you have a plan for it, so it's going to activate the prefrontal cortex, and your prefrontal cortex by your forehead at the front of your brain, the top of your brain is going to be like, oh, we were ready for this. Activate the plan. Now you have a plan, as opposed to being uh, having a defeatist mindset. So what I would do, if anyone is on this podcast listening, I would write down, what are all of your triggers, to use your phrase, or Joshua Waitzkin's phrase, what are all the triggers? What makes you mad? What makes you sad? What makes you frustrated? What makes you angry? And then what you want to do is write down, okay, when that thing happens, what are you going to do about it? How do you want to respond when this happens? How do you want to respond when you start beating up on yourself? How do you want to respond when your opponent does this? Okay, what are you going to do? Then visualize yourself doing it. Okay, now visualize it again. Now visualize it again. Okay, now tell your coach, now let's practice it. Okay, now do it again. Now do it again. And so what you're doing is training your brain to respond better to this adversity. So the analogy we use is when you're driving down a highway, are you familiar, have you, and, and some people are, or some people are not, I don't know if here in the United States, if we have people living in other countries, we have rumble strips on the side of highways. And so what a rumble strip does is when you run over it, it rumbles, it vibrates the whole car. It's like brrr, just essentially to tell the driver, hey, wake up, get back into the lane. Now it doesn't damage the car, It doesn't damage the tires. It's just a little wake-up call. Oh, get back into the middle of the lane. What you want to set up are mental rumble strips. And so what we do is, what are all of these stimulus, what are all these triggers that get you off your game? And anytime you feel your mind goes to these negative thoughts, we want them to serve as rumble strips. We don't want you to beat up on yourself for thinking these thoughts. No, you're human. You're going to think negative thoughts. We want them to serve as rumble strips like, oh, you're getting off track. Let's get you back on the focus to your your anchor. Now, what are your anchors? Okay, this is what I want to be thinking. This is where I need to be focused. This is where I need to be. And so anytime you get off track, hit your rumble strip, it's not a signal that you're mentally weak. It's a signal that you're getting distracted. Uh, Use that as a signal that, oh, you're getting off your anchor. And so what you also want to establish, what are your anchors? Where should you be focusing? What do you want to think? What words do you want to be in the forefront of your mind? If you're thinking about the other thing, again, that's not a signal that you're mentally weak. It's a signal that you're losing focus. Get back to your anchor. 
Yeah, I, I love that insight. I think people are often way too hard on themselves when it comes to, you know, just the doubts that they might have. People really beat themselves up over that that kind of negative thinking. And I think people don't always understand, look, this, it happens to everyone. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not defective because you're having, uh, you know, negative thoughts or self-doubt. But there are these tools that you can use that help tremendously to get back on the right track as opposed to just dwelling. So I, I think that's a fantastic advice. I would also ask you, you know, we've talked so far about peak performance. And when we have these conversations, we're normally talking about the absolute tippy, tippy, tippy top of performance, right? The absolute best in the world and how do they perform and succeed against the other best in the world. The reality of our sport, at least jujitsu, is there's a lot of people who do it casually. I'd say the majority, the vast majority are hobbyists and casual grapplers. And so I would love to know if you have any thoughts on whether the practice changes when you're not talking about peak athletes, but rather you're just talking about regular people who just want to improve their lives and maybe get a bit better. Do they use the same methods to improve as you would apply to a a peak athlete? Or is there a slightly different approach that should be taken for people who are ultimately doing something more casually? I go back to the beginning of our conversation. And what's really neat about the research on all of these strategies and this domain is that it's not tied, it's universal. You can use it as an insurance agent. You can use these tools in your relationships. You can use them with your families. You can use them while you're driving in the car and you get cut off by somebody to regulate your emotions. And so I think the practicality and the utility of these tools are universal. Whether you're an elite athlete, whether you are not only you're doing it recreationally, whether you're a coach or whether you're a cashier at a grocery store, whether you wherever you are in the world, these are just tools to help you become the best version of yourself, whatever that version looks like. And so I think the growth mindset, it's a function of being able to recognize, hey, where are you? And not compare yourself to other people. If this is recreational, great. It's recreational. Enjoy it. Have fun. Learn. Grow. And be comfortable in your own skin and have intellectual humility and be understanding the circle of your competence and being okay with it and knowing that's okay. So I would say these are just universal. How can you apply these to you? And to be honest, if you don't want to be elite, that's okay. That's completely fine. But you can still use these. And and another thing I love about these, try them out. See what they, how, they, how they affect you, not just on the mat and in the gym, but at home. Try it at work. You can practice these. You can teach them to your kids. And so that's where I think it can be used by, they can be used by anyone. I first started using these tools uh, with young 10-year-old baseball players. That's where I started, 10-year-old baseball players. And then my eyes got open more and more and more to see that the athletes at the very top of the tippy top of the spear are using them. They were first deployed with soldiers and Olympic athletes, and then they're deployed to professional athletes. And now we're seeing high schools using them and young kids using them because of the utility and the benefit that they're providing anybody in any domain. Yeah. Amazing, man. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming by and sharing your knowledge here. Before we tie this up, anything you wanted to bring up or any thoughts you had that we didn't get into yet on this call? Just a funny story. Here's my first my first experience with jujitsu. So I'm born and raised in Los Angeles, and I had two dear, dear friends of mine that just absolutely loved these guys. And so they lived across the street, and I'd walk by their house. We'd walk to school together. And uh, every day, there's a gentleman. Their grandfather was, was in the garage, and he was on the mat. And you Justin, this is a 93 or something like that. Oh, wow. Justin, come learn jujitsu in like the early 90s. I'm like, no, no, I don't want to learn that. I don't want to learn that. Justin, come. Justin, come. And I would say, no. He goes, I said, I play baseball. He's like, you're going to want to learn. You're going to want to learn this. And my friends would, were into jujitsu. They're like, you should learn it. You should do it. You should do it. I'm like, no, no, I'm not into this. And next thing you know, I time passes, time passes. And I regret that moment because that gentleman who was inviting me to teach me and work with me was a gentleman named Helio Gracie. Oh my goodness. And, and those two friends was Henner and Hidon Gracie, who are still my friends to this day. And I kick myself. I'm like, oh my gosh, I should have gotten into jujitsu in the 90s. 
<laughs> man, man, you had an amazing opportunity there. But hey, no, you know what? No time like the present. There's still time if you right. want to get into it, man. <laughs> awesome. Well, well, thank you so much, Justin. I, I appreciate this so much. If people want to follow you or check out your work, how do they go about doing that? Any of the social social media, Justin Sua, J-U-S-T-I-N-S-U-A, Twitter, Instagram, I'm there. Awesome. Amazing. And of course, I think everyone knows, but if you want to get a hold of us, go to bjjmentalmodels.com. There's a ton of stuff on there, a back catalog of over 200 episodes now. All of them are timeless and still valuable. I've also got a full database of the concepts we talk about on the show. You can contact me. You can sign up for our awesome newsletter. And of course, you can sign up for BJJ Mental Models Premium. That is how we pay the bills around here. Premium is our, well, I mean, I guess the name says it all. It's our premium service. That's where you get much more deep and in-depth conversations than when we talk about here on the public show. You also get coaching from our our all-star team of black belts who will take your footage, break it down, and give you super, super detailed feedback, probably unlike anything you've ever had before. And you get to be part of our awesome community, so I always do recommend it. There's a free trial, so you can check it out at no risk if you want to do that. Same URL, just go to bjjmentalmodels.com. And as I always do i'll put a link to all of this stuff in the show notes so if anyone wants to check out justin learn more about what we talked about or or sign up for premium or contact me just go to the show notes and the link will be there but justin man thanks so much i've been looking forward to this chat for a while and it definitely delivered so happy to have you on here i know it's kind of a, a meeting of the minds from two very different sports but i think we demonstrated that some things are universal like coaching best practices and i think this chat's going to be really inspiring to a lot of people Steve, thank you so much for this opportunity. It was, a, it was a blast. Most welcome, my friend. And thanks to everyone listening as well. Hope everyone's having a great time out there and we'll talk to you next week. Take care.